Well, if you don't know me, my name's Paul Tomey. I'm on the pastoral staff here. And uh, I want to begin today just by asking this question. See if any of these things um, describe you, all right? If you've ever been told you have a stubborn streak, if you work out regularly in front of a mirror, wearing spandex, beyond the age of 60, if you post selfies only of yourself, if you have a constant need to be noticed or to have your achievements recognized, if you get defensive easily or have a hard time taking correction, or you have made and posted a TikTok video in the, in the last year, you may be suffering from the queen mother of all sins. It's the sin of pride. Pride is the root of all sin, and sin is the root of all evil around us. One of the greatest commentaries on the subject of pride comes from a children's book, surprisingly, called Yertle the Tur Turtle by Dr. Seuss. You may have read it in elementary school, had it read to you, one of those things. If you remember the story, Yertle is the king of his turtle pond. And he is the king and ruler over all that he can see, which isn't all that much because he is on a lily pad sitting on the surface of the water. But one day he has this brilliant idea. If he could just get higher, if he could just get taller and he could see more, then he could rule over more things. And so a decree goes out to the, the pond of turtles that all the turtles should come. And he begins stacking them one on top of the other with himself at the very top. And every time a turtle comes, they slide in underneath and they slide underneath and the tower starts to get larger and it starts to get a little less stable. But it's, it's kind of waving and everything up front. But Yertle is at the top and now he can see so far. Until one small turtle at the very bottom named Mac burps and the whole thing comes tumbling down. It's a great commentary on the dangers of pride. And pride is something that's hard to get a hold of, quite frankly. Not only is it hard to recognize in ourselves, but it's even harder to own up to. Harder to own up to. And on the other side of that, humility is something that sometimes we look at and we think, well, I don't know if it really pays off all that much. I mean, look around. The, the humble people in the world around us, they don't seem to get very far. They don't seem to have all the stuff. It's, it seems to be the people who, who promote themselves and are proud about their accomplishments and talk big about themselves. They seem to be able to get the things that they want out of life, but people are humble, and we're not too sure that it pays off, right? But what if humility really is this beautiful, wonderful gift from God? What if humility really is the kind of gift that somehow relieves all the pressure on us to perform, to project that image that other people want to see, to make ourselves look bigger than we really are? What if it's this rare and priceless gift? I remember hearing the story of a Sunday school class that was uh, uh, of, of six-year-olds that was reenacting the creation story. And uh, the teacher, Miss Bird, had got all the kids uh, there. They all had uh, a certain role to play. Some were animals, some were trees, some were birds, some were, you know, all, the whole thing. And as, uh, as God, they had one kid that they chose to be God. And he stood on top of a ladder. His name was Jonathan. And he shone a flashlight over all the proceedings and everything that was going on. And just about the time that the creepy crawlers were crawling over to the swimmers that were, you know, there around the birds, all of a sudden, Miss Bird feels a tug on her skirt. It's God. He wants out. He just looks her in the eye and he says to her, I'm just feeling too crazy to be God today. Can you please find someone else? Wouldn't it be great if humility was that kind of thing that allowed us to be honest with ourselves, right? It is a rare and priceless gift that we have. 
We're in part four of a message series in the book of Daniel called Daring to be Different. And the story that we're going to come upon in chapter four, and if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there or fire up your smartphone, doesn't matter. The story that we're going to run into is a story about King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You have met him before in the book of Daniel, if you've been listening in or you've been here. And uh, what we're going to see in this story is two themes that emerge. One is Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the dangers of pride that accompany that. The other thing that we're going to see is the, 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 the subversive humility, the subversive humility of Daniel. And these two themes will play off of each other throughout the story, as you'll see. And what we want to do is trace each one of them, but we want to really focus on what does it really mean to be subversively humble? We see this in the life of Daniel. And so let's get into the story. We'll pick it up in Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And actually, Daniel starts at the end, the very beginning of Daniel 4. It actually starts at the end of Daniel 4, or all the events culminating in Daniel 4. It's like an official summary. And Nebuchadnezzar himself relates this in a letter he sends out to all the kingdom. Listen. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion rules from generation to generation. This is an official, formal, royal, confessional letter that Nebuchadnezzar sends out to the entire kingdom. It's got him as the sender, it's got recipients, it's got a, a general greeting there, peace to all, right? And then he makes this proclamation. He declares the greatness and the supremacy of the God of Israel, Yahweh, over all other gods and over all other things in all of the universe. And it's an impressive proclamation, especially hearing from a pagan king, right? The question simply is this. What were the events that led up to that? That's how the rest of Daniel 4 rolls back and begins at the beginning, starting in verse 4. We don't know the time frame here, quite frankly, how earlier this is. But Nebuchadnezzar relates this story about himself. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Look at these two words, at ease and prospering. They form kind of an idiom in the Hebrew language. And the whole idea behind them is when a king was at ease, it meant that all the external and internal threats to his kingdom had been quelled. He no longer had to worry about things. He could now sit on his throne. He could be, as they would say, at rest and be at ease. He didn't have to worry about anything. And he would then begin to set up the regular rhythms of the kingdom and how things would function regularly within his kingdom at that time. The Hebrew also uses this word prospering, which is literally the word for luxuriant, something that is just flourishing. That's what the, the New King James Version says. So there's, just, there's growth and it's green and everything is going great, right? He is at ease and he is prospering. Let me translate this for you. Nebuchadnezzar is killing it in life. He is on top. He is the big dog. He is over all of these things and he knows it. I mean, all of his military campaigns have been finished. All of his vast building projects have been completed, and they were extremely vast, which, by the way, is a status symbol for kings in the ancient Near East to, to build things after everything is, is kind of quelled and they have their kingdom settled. So he's got all of this stuff out there, and he is the architect of probably one of the most advanced, sophisticated, but also decadent cultures that the world has ever known. 
It's no, no secret that the book of Revelation uses Babylon as a symbol of runaway opulence, pleasure, desire, indulgence. I mean, if you want to think about a city that's like that, think Las Vegas on Red Bull. <laughs> that was Babylon. That's how it was seen. And it was a powerful, powerful, powerful dominating force in the lives of all of its people. And Nebuchadnezzar is over all of it as far as he can see. There's this saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I believe it. Nebuchadnezzar is here. He is full of himself. He is running on full, high-octane grandiosity. He thinks he's a really big deal. He knows he's a big deal, and in essence, in the world, he really is a big deal. But let me tell you what happens to a human being when this happens to them. What happens to them is that there's no room for God anymore. When the self is so stuffed with self, there's no room for God. Someone once told me that the word ego, E-G-O, stands for edging God out. And that's what happens to us. When we think we're a really big deal, when pride surfaces and it gets larger and larger and larger, we think we're a really big deal. And the truth is, everybody wants to rule the world, right? They ought to make a song about that. Anyone ever make a song with that title? This is not just true of Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. This is true of all of us. This is true of you. This is true of me. It's true of all of us. We all want to rule our little kingdom. We all want to rule our little world around us. We want to control it. We want to know everything that happens in it. We want to be first in it. It's just very true. And was this not the essence of the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent comes and tempts Eve and says, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be your own God. You get to be self-deterministic, decide what you want to do, where, what you want to eat, where you want to go, how you want to live. It is the very essence and it's the quintessential definition of pride. Someone has once said that the difference between us and God is that God doesn't think he's us. So when we take the place of God, it is toxic to our human souls and it corrupts our psyche. So if you'd like to fill in the blank, here's the fill in the blank on your outline this morning, all right? And it's the very first one. Human pride is the root of all evil. Human pride is the root of all evil. This is not the way that we were made. It puts us at odds with God, at odds with the universe, at odds with other people, and at odds within ourselves. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded that we're not such a big deal. Muhammad Ali, the great uh, uh, heavyweight boxer, was once on a plane flight, and uh, as the plane was getting ready to take off, the attendant was going down the aisle, as they always do, and she was checking everyone's seatbelt, and she noticed he didn't have his seatbelt on, so she said, sir, would you please put your seatbelt on? And he stood up, and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she looked him straight in the eye, and she said, Superman don't need no airplane either. Shut up, sit down, and put your seatbelt on. We all need a little bit of reminder. And that's exactly what happens in the rest of our story. God reminds Nebuchadnezzar that he's not such a big deal. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 5 again. The king will have a perplexing dream. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. The king has this very troubling dream, right? And you just have to understand, this is a huge buzzkill for him. He's on top of everything, and all of a sudden, there's this very troubling dream that God gives to him. He says he kept being alarmed at this. So he summons his team of wise men. They all come in. Hey, can someone tell me what the dream means? They all come up empty. They do not know. And finally, Daniel shows up. And we don't know where Daniel was at this time. He might have been in another part of the kingdom doing some administrative work. He's a pretty high official in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But finally, Daniel shows up. And you can see the king is a little bit excited. He's a little bit anxious, but he's also relieved. He's like, oh, finally, Daniel. Look at verse 8. And at last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my own God, and in whom, the spi- and it, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Now, as I was reading these verses, I don't know if it occurred to you as it occurred to me, but there's an awful lot of buttering up going on here. Do you notice what he does to Daniel? He's like, Daniel, you have the name after my own God, right? And you're the chief of the, magician, uh, of the magicians, which Daniel was. He was the, the leader. He was put in charge of everybody. And he's like, and, and you have the spirit of the holy gods. Twice he says that, which really is just a, a nice way of saying, hey, you are super spiritual. I know that. And then finally, it's that idea that he has here. He's like, and, and you can tell me anything. You, you, can, you know all the different interpretations. And I got to thinking, there's a lot of flattery being flung Daniel's way, Right? He's trying to build him up. The king would love to get his buzz back, and so, man, he wants a good report on this dream. One of the things I want you to notice here, and it's what daring to be different means, is simply this. Daring to be different means that we do not buy into uh, our own hype. Uh, uh, We don't buy into when people build us up, when we have great accomplishments, which is okay to have. We don't have to build ourselves up when something goes on. Daniel doesn't buy into this at all. He doesn't buy into the hype. He doesn't buy into all the buttering up. He doesn't buy into his own press. It's one of the things that we need to learn as we are followers of Jesus is that that's dangerous when you start to buy into your own hype. Nebuchadnezzar had bought into it. Daniel is subversively humble. He didn't come right out with it or anything, but he is subversively humble. And so the dream gets recited to Daniel, starting in verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar relates, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed. Don't you think that's very Dr. Seusserish, by the way? I love that. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed loud, and he said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit all around, let the beasts of the earth flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the the beasts in the grass of the earth. 
Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is some dream, right? I don't know about you, I never remember my dreams. All I remember about them is that they are bizarre, crazy, and surrealistic. But I can never remember the pieces. He remembers all the pieces, right? So when Daniel hears the dream, I mean, it stops him in his tracks. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, who is Daniel, answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation be for your enemies. Daniel is clearly freaked out by the dream. He almost immediately understands what's going on in the dream, and he understands it because God gives him wisdom in these things. But he stops for a moment, and the word dismayed here in the Hebrew means to be dumbfounded or shocked speechless, so to speak. It's like he can't even believe what he's hearing. But note here, he doesn't just immediately come out with it. It says that he's dismayed for a while. And I want you to note something. I think it's very important for those of us living in this time, this day, and in this age, particularly as we have come out of COVID or are coming out of it and post-COVID, and that's simply this. Daring to be different means that we refuse to rejoice in the misfortunes of others whom we may not like or may not like what they say or may not like what they do, but we refuse to rejoice in the misfortunes that may befall them. Daniel is very caring here, by the way. That's what I want you to see. Instead of responding immediately, he is thoughtful. He takes some time. He's cautious. He has compassion for Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. He's actually forged a working relationship with this despotic king. And despite how he may not respect certain things about him, Daniel is loyal to the day is long. And he remains loyal, and he remains compassionate, and he's very sensitive as he begins to relate what this is going to mean and in his response. And it's like, hey, uh, the king says, hey, don't let this alarm you, Daniel. It's not a bad thing, right? And Daniel's like, oh, if only, if only. I mean, you wouldn't wish this dream on your worst enemies, king, much less yourself. So then Daniel begins to interpret the dream. And this is good news followed by bad news, by the way. I remember hearing a story about two gentlemen who had played baseball together. They loved baseball. They were wild about baseball. They followed all the teams as they grew up, even having played together. They grew up, and eventually they got into their late 80s, and they, they just, but they still loved it. And they would sit around, they would talk about baseball, and they would actually sometimes debate, was there ever going to be baseball in heaven? Like, like yeah, I think there's going to be baseball in heaven. Like, I don't know, man, I don't know. I hope so, but no, who, who can know? Who can be sure? Well, one day one of them dies. And uh, his friend is extremely sad, but a couple of days later, he comes back from the dead. And he says, Bob, you won't believe this. I've got great news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. He says, well, tell me, what's the great news? He goes, there is baseball in heaven. There's baseball in heaven, man. It's so cool. You are going to love it. And he said, ah, Bob goes, that's great news. What's the the bad news? And he said, well, you're pitching tomorrow. (laughs) 
So Daniel's going to relate a little of the good news, then he's going to relate a little bit of the bad news here. Here we go, verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Daniel just says, and he shoots very straight, you really are a big deal, Nebuchadnezzar. You are clearly a big deal. Two times he says, you have grown strong. But then comes the bad news. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord, the king. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Ouch. Daniel shoots straight again. Nebuchadnezzar, there's a storm coming. And listen, everything's going to unravel. And the wheels are going to come off. And it is not going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly for you. And the fact that this comes from God, from a watcher, a holy one that comes down from heaven means that the word is confirmed that God is allowing this to take place and to happen. And by the way, the, the word watcher here is a word probably for a supernatural being, an angel of some kind. It's the only time the term is used in the Old Testament here in the book of Daniel. But I also want you to know this, that even though the hammer is going to drop, there is a note of redemption, a note of hope here. The stump will be left, right? And from the stump, restoration is possible. But that restoration is going to be contingent upon one thing, that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the utter supremacy of God in his life. That is what Daniel tells him. And then Daniel offers this warning, and I want you to key in on this if you can for just a moment, in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you, Daniel says. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I love this term, break off your sins, right? The word was used of breaking the yoke of an animal, all right, or breaking the chains of someone who was a slave. But the word carries undertones of, of violence to it. It is to do something drastically, to break it, to shatter it. It's in a certain verb form in the Hebrew language that is very, very intense. And I got to thinking about this in regard to my own sin and my own pride. Most of the time, you know what I want to do with it? I want to finesse it. I want to massage it. I don't really want to deal with it. I mean, I want to deal with it. I don't want to have to deal with all the consequences, but I don't really want to deal with it, right? Are you like me? And we just kind of toy with it, and we play with it, and kind of, well, maybe I'll try it, and maybe, I, I don't know what will happen. Jesus talked about that in the greatest message that Jesus ever preached, he talked about this very thing. He said, if your right eye caused you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away from you. It's better that you enter heaven without one of your members than to enter hell having all your members. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better that you should enter heaven losing one member than to enter hell and have all your members. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is not advocating that we literally do these things, but what is he saying? He's using hyperbole, but he's basically saying this, you better take drastic action because that thing is going to kill you and it's going to suck the life out of you. There's this unbelievable story that I love in the book of Exodus around the, the 10 plagues as Moses is delivering the people out of Egypt, particularly the plague of frogs. If you remember the plague, Moses calls down a plague of, of frogs upon all the land and frogs start coming out of everywhere from the Nile. And they're in everything and there are millions and millions and millions and billions of frogs and they're all over the place. They're in people's food, they're in their beds, they're on the floor. You can't even take a step without stepping on a frog. And they're not just the little tiny you know, tree frogs. They are the big, massive, slimy, ugly, nasty bullfrogs. And they are making everyone's life miserable, including Pharaoh. And finally Pharaoh has enough and he's like, okay, Moses, done, take away the frogs. And there's this very interesting exchange that goes on. So Moses says to Pharaoh, he says, so you tell me, when do you want me to pray to take away the frogs? Do you remember Pharaoh's response? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Pharaoh's gonna spend another night with the frogs. That's what he's gonna do. Oh, tomorrow, right? And I thought, how, how this is so like me. I will be willing to put up and tolerate certain sins, certain addictions, certain habit patterns that are destructive to my life, but I'll just keep tolerating because I don't really want to do anything with them. And I always keep saying, tomorrow, 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 maybe I'll do it tomorrow, maybe I'll get rid of that tomorrow, maybe I'll really allow God to do something tomorrow in this. And man, the frogs can be anything. They can be addictive uh, addictions that you have. It could be a habit pattern. Maybe you're someone who's like, I, you know, when I get really mad, I just rage out on people, right? I have an anger issue. Or maybe I protect myself by lying. Whenever something comes up that I don't want to have to face, I kind of lie about it. Maybe it's cheating. Maybe it's some kind of approval addiction. That's one that I have. Maybe you're a closet smoker. Maybe you're a Lakers fan. It doesn't really matter, okay? <laughs> It's just a sin you're not willing to get rid of. <laughs> Do you know that one out of every seven heart attack victims who survive, only one of them does what doctors advise not to have it happen again? One out of seven. And that's us. That was Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel said, break it off, man. Take drastic action. Do something about this and do something about it right now. And that's what daring to be different really means. It means being responsive and willing to address those things that are just killing us, those things that are toxic to our souls, those things that are corrupting us inside and driving us nuts. So I wanna do something here, and we don't normally do this here at Bridgewater, at least since I've been here, and I haven't been here that long. Um, but uh, I wanna take a moment. I think when you come to moments like this, there's something that we ought to do, and that's to create just some sacred space for God to work on us and to do some soul work ourselves. And so what we want to do here for just a moment, just for a few minutes, is I want you to take a few moments, and, I, and in silence, I just want you to sit there, and I want you to think about, what's my frog? What's that thing, that, that habit pattern or that habit, that addictive tendency? What is that in my life? And I just want you to, to actually close your eyes. I want you to think about it. 
And uh, Dylan and Rayon and Courtney are going to come up, and they're just going to lead us through a time of, uh, of just thinking. I want you to listen to the words of the song, and then I'm going to lead you through a guided time where we're just going to do a little soul work and try to create that sacred space around this moment. Because I feel like if we wait to the end, we'll lose it. I don't want to do a tomorrow thing. So let's just take a few moments to do that. Would you just bow your head and maybe just whisper what it is that you're, you've identified. Just maybe whisper it to yourself. And then take a few moments to talk to God about it. Let's just let's bow our heads and do that. like the waters fill the seas, that you are everywhere moving and powerful, that you are a good and gracious Father, and you just don't want to leave us in the mess that we create for ourselves because you love us with an everlasting love. So now, Lord, we bring these to you. And I want you to imagine holding that thing in your hand, grasping onto it, and then I want you to be thinking about just letting go of it. Open your hands. Say, God, I want to do something with this. I need to get rid of this. So this week, Lord, would you guide me 
in that process? Would you keep my commitment that I'm feeling at this moment strong? Would you break through my hardness, my pride, the thing that keeps me from wanting to respond to you and hold on to this? Lord, would you break that like you break a yoke? Would you break it like you break the chains of a slave? And would you allow us the freedom that we would feel in this, Lord? We give this all to you, Lord. And then I just want you to think real quick for a moment, what would be one thing, just one thing that you could do this week that would lead you to continue to keep that yoke broken, that chain broken? And then just take time to just say, God, I commit this to you. Work in me this week. Lord, we commit this to you, and we ask you to do that work in us. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right. You know, I want to encourage you, if you've felt God tugging on your heart with this, tell somebody. That's one of the other great things you can do. Not just God, but tell someone else. This is something I've got to, got to do something with. It will be life-giving to you. Well, one year later, the dream materializes. One year later, the dream materializes. Nebuchadnezzar's mind begins to unravel, right? Look at Daniel 4, verse 28. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And while he was in basking in his glory and all of his achievements and, and everything that was happening there, at the end of 12 months, and I won't take time to read through this part of the scripture because it's exactly the same almost as what Daniel prophesies that the dream means. But Nebuchadnezzar succumbs to a form of mental illness known as, known as boanthropy, all right? It's, it's an actually documented form of illness in which someone uh, has a powerful paranoia and is given powerful delusions about themselves, and they actually begin to imagine themselves as an animal. So they might, in this case, it's going to be a cow or an ox or a bull that Nebuchadnezzar will, will imagine himself to be, and they will actually even act like that animal at times. And by the way, this is where we, we actually get our urban legend and myth of Eastern European werewolves. There's a, a, an actual uh, uh, disposition that's called lycanthropy, imagining yourself to be a wolf. So this is going on. His whole mind just unravels, right? And by the way, we have three extra biblical sources not found in the Bible who note a gap period in Nebuchadnezzar's reign late in his reign that something went on. They don't tell us the, the, the amount of time or how long it was. In here we have seven periods of time. A lot of translators think, well, that means seven years of time, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that, by the way. The Hebrew term itamin actually has the idea of seasons or periods, and it's an indeterminate length of time. It can mean seven months, it can mean seven years, it can mean seven days. The number seven could even be symbolic. We do not know how long he was afflicted with this. But don't miss the point here, all right? Whatever you may think. When you and I give in to sin, when a human being does that, when they allow pride to well up and not cut something off, when that takes place, it always, always, always reduces our humanity. We are not able to be the full human beings that God has made and created for us to be. We cannot fulfill all that potential. We always will experience diminished capacities in our minds, our emotions, our hearts, our wills, our drives, our desires, our ambitions. You will always be a little less human. And you may know this, maybe you in the crowd here have done this. I have known people, I have done some things myself that were absolutely unspeakable, that almost felt animalistic. 
But that is what sin does to us. It robs us. It chips away all that we are as human beings. And it certainly did that in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Now, there are two interesting sidebar observations I want to make real quick on this. One, the consequences. Notice it's one year later. One year later. Now, oftentimes, I don't know how you think about this, but here's how I think about it. If I do something that's evil or bad, and, uh, and I think, oh, there's going to be consequences, and they don't happen, not only am I thankful, but I actually find myself thinking a little bit of this, and maybe you do this too. I think I got by with it. <laughs> right? Oh, I think I got by. If the, if the consequences aren't immediate, you think, nobody saw, nobody knows. I'm clear. I'm clean. Right? One year later, do not be fooled. Consequences of sin will always show up. It may not show up for a while. It may not be immediate. But it may show up in your children. It may show up in your grandchildren. It may show up in your spouse. It may show up in your workplace. It may show up somewhere else in your friendship circle, in your network. It will show up somewhere. And in Nebuchadnezzar's life, a year later, man, the hammer falls and everything falls apart. Here's the other observation, and this is speculative on my part. We have no biblical reference to this. There's no extra biblical references to this. But I ask myself this question. What was Daniel doing during this time that King Nebuchadnezzar was absent? What was he doing? And I thought a lot about this, and I thought, you know, traditionally in the ancient Near East, if you as a king showed any sign of weakness, if there were any sign of weakness, oftentimes it was an invitation, an open invitation for your enemies to take you out. You would either be assassinated, exiled, deposed. I mean, you showed any weakness whatsoever, it was, it was history. You were toast, right? That Nebuchadnezzar is not says something. And here's what I think happened. This is, again, speculative on my part. But I think Daniel as a high-ranking official in the administration, protects Nebuchadnezzar, oversees his care during this time, watches over him because he does go outside and roam the palace grounds and eat grass and act like an ox and all those different things. But I think Nebuchadnezzar is behind the scenes and he's, he's taking care of things. And he's running the kingdom. And he's making sure everything is going smooth. Again, one of the things you will see here is Daniel's subversive humility at work. He has forged a relationship with this king. He cares about this king. He is compassionate. He wants to see him restored and come back. He doesn't want to see the misfortune continue to go on. So he's protecting Nebuchadnezzar, and he's protecting the kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar eventually is restored. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, that is these seven periods of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. For none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me as well. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar comes to realize the utter supremacy of God over all of life, over all things, and especially over himself. 
Scholars debate sometimes, was this an actual conversion? Was Nebuchadnezzar converted at this point? We don't know, quite frankly. I have read scholars who feel like the first four chapters of the book of Daniel are actually a way of showing the progression of Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith in God at this time. But we don't really know. Does it stop just short? Is he a God-fear? We don't know. But what it does is cycles us back to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, right? The official letter of proclamation where Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, I got to tell you what God has done for me. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the first three chapters of Daniel, God has done nothing for Nebuchadnezzar. He's done something for Daniel. He's done something for Daniel's friends. But he's never done anything for Nebuchadnezzar, and that's why I think it applies all to chapter 4 here in this passage. But it reminds me of this final point, and don't miss the point. It's in the very final line. If you didn't read the whole chapter, but you read the final line, here it is. Those who walk in pride, he will humble. Those who walk in pride, he will humble. This reminds me of another New Testament verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-6, through 6, where Peter writes and says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So how do we humble ourselves? That's a great question. And I want to give you a couple of practical things here as we're closing up. And the first one is this, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time here if I can. But you have to bow to the supremacy of God. You have to bow yourself. Your heart, your life, mind, body, and soul, you have to bow yourself to the supremacy of God. And that, makes making, that means making a crucial decision in life. I am going to become a follower of Jesus. I'm going to allow God to take center piece of my life. And I'm going to embrace him with all that I have, everything that I am, for the rest of my life. It is a life-changing decision. But to invite Jesus Christ to be the exclusive, supreme person in your life is exactly where everything else starts in life. And if you're sitting here or you're online out there watching, and you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, I want to encourage you, today may be the day. I want to ask you to seriously consider making a commitment of your life to Christ at this time. And we'll give you time, maybe at the end, to do that here today as we close out. Daniel, on the other hand, has subversive humility, and it's great. He had learned a great secret. And it's a secret that the composer and the conductor Tchaikovsky once learned as well. Someone once asked him, they said, well, what's the hardest instrument to play in an orchestra? And he said, second fiddle. <laughs> Everyone wants to play first fiddle. Second fiddle is a different ballgame. But Daniel had learned to play second fiddle, right? Everything else will flow from this. Here's the second thing you can do. Check yourself regularly. Just evaluate your life. Examine yourself, right? Alcoholics Anonymous has one of their, the points of their 12-step uh, program. One of the steps is to engage in a ruthless moral inventory. And we ought to be people who engage in ruthless spiritual inventories of our lives. How am I doing? Where am I at? Think about this. Ask yourself some questions. Do I have a tendency to exaggerate my abilities? Do I think that others cannot do things without me or without my advice? Do I always have to tell them you know, what to do? Do I always feel like I have to say something to them? Do I find a need to control the actions of others all the time? Do I have to be in the spotlight? Do I, have to, do I ever feel secretly envious of others who are in the spotlight when I'm not in the spotlight? Here's the third thing. Intentionally adopt spiritual disciplines of abstinence. Spiritual disciplines of abstinence. A lot of our spiritual disciplines that grow our spiritual life our, our disciplines of engagement, Bible study, prayer, worship, serving, 
giving, those are all really, really great things, but there are a few disciplines that are about denying yourself, like generosity, chastity, fasting. Those are ones in which we, we kind of say no to things that we think we have to have, but in reality, we don't really have to have. And it's a way of training our souls towards God as we practice these things. Fourth, you can surround yourselves with the right kind of people. And surround yourselves with good community. That's what's so great about being a part of a church here, like Bridgeway. You are around people who are like-minded, like-hearted, and hopefully will speak the truth to you. I love how Daniel speaks the truth, right? You need to be around people who will be honest with you. They don't have to be brutal, but they need to be honest, as Daniel was, right? I don't know. For years, I've watched American Idol. I kind of enjoy watching it, but I mostly like to enjoy watching the auditions. And you know how you have people who come up to the auditions, and they think they're utterly the greatest singer on the planet? And they start singing, and it's horrible. I mean, it's absolutely awful. And Simon Cowell sits there, and he's like, what? What made you think you could win this competition? Well, my mother told me I'm the greatest singer in the world. My friends all love my singing. My friends think that I sing like a bird. My, my friends... Man, that's just bad community. <laughs> when people tell you things that are not true about yourself, we all need people who are honest with us, who will shoot straight with us, who won't pull punches, but will do it in a sensitive kind of way as Daniel does it. And that's why God created grandchildren and middle schoolers and spouses. Because they just don't pull any punches, man. They just, they will tell you, okay? That's why you have those people in your life. So here's the final thing, and it comes from, from uh, Daniel's warning to Nebuchadnezzar. Engage in opportunities to serve those who are less fortunate. Engage in opportunities to serve those who are less fortunate. That is, those who cannot give you back anything, who cannot reciprocate, who can't offer you anything in return for what you do, who won't recognize you, that you've done it, might not even say thank you. But serve those who are less fortunate than you are. The, one of the best definitions of serving I ever heard was, was from a, a friend of mine, uh, Paul Edwards, who said, uh, a servant's heart or a servant is someone who willingly gives up their own rights so that the will of God will be achieved and accomplished in the lives of others. Who willingly gives up their own rights, and we have our own rights, right? But when we willingly give those up so that the will of God can be served in the lives of other people, that's true servanthood. So you can do a lot of different things, man. You can choose to have a day of secret service where you just pick a day and you go like, I'm gonna serve a whole bunch of people and I'm not gonna care about whether I get recognized or not. I'm not gonna tell anyone that I'm doing it. Or maybe you can engage in the practice of interruption that is allowing people to interrupt your day, your schedule, your life. Or you can practice the ministry of holding your tongue. That's a good one. <clears throat> when you know you wanna say something, you wanna advise somebody, you gotta tell, you wanna fix something. No, no, you don't have to actually say anything. Right? Or maybe giving up your place in line at the grocery store this week, or at the stoplight, or at the four-way stop when you arrive there before anyone else, but you allow that other person to go first. Those are all, they're little things, but they train your soul. They cultivate a, a sense of appropriate smallness in our lives to where we don't have to think we're the best thing since sliced bread, that we're, the, we're a big deal in our lives. In the end, we will either humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Believe that. That's exactly the point of this. We either will do this ourselves voluntarily 
or there will be a time when the hammer will fall, either now or in eternity, and we will truly be humbled at that time. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way. Daniel learned the easy way. Choose one. And I want to encourage you, choose Daniel's way. It is the easy way. We're going to take some time to pray right now. And for those of you who may be sitting there saying, man, I want to give my life to Christ, I want to offer you a chance to do that, and then I'll pray for the rest of us here as we leave this place. Let's pray together. And I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up as we're praying. If you're here today or you're watching online, and this is the moment that you sense God is knocking on the door of your heart, that God is trying to break through I want to invite you to give your life to Jesus Christ here this morning. It's a very simple thing, and yet it's the hardest thing in the world to swallow our pride, to soften up, and to allow that to happen. But I pray that if you're here, and this is the moment that God is speaking to you, that you take advantage of it right now, for this is the day of salvation. And that you pray a very simple prayer such as this. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came to this planet to show a different way of life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins, that I might be forgiven, that you took all of the penalty and all of the power out of sin at that cross. And Jesus, I wanna ask, uh, in your resurrected life, because you were raised from the dead, you are alive today and you can enter my life and you can give me a new life, you can give me peace, you can start me on the road to restoration and redemption, you can rebuild the broken places. And so Lord, I wanna give my life to you today. I offer it to you, everything I have, everything I am for the rest of my life, I give my life to you. Will you take it? And Lord, would you grant me a new life, a new start, and a clean slate? And Lord, for the rest of us here today, we just simply ask, uh, as we know you, that you do the perfect work that you're going to do in us. Lord, do not let pride grow in us, but allow us to serve others. Allow us to forget ourselves. Allow us to cultivate that subversive humility that Daniel had, that we might experience true life and live the way that you designed for us to live. We give you great honor and great praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If God has been speaking to you, thank you. If God's been speaking to you, we have people up here who will pray with you. They would love to talk with you. And if you've invited Christ into your life, tell, tell one of them. Tell someone that's happened. I have a prayer prompt for you this week, all right? Real quick. It is, where can I give up, and just be praying about this, where can I give up my rights so that God's will can be accomplished in someone else's life? Where can I give up my rights voluntarily so that God's will can be accomplished in someone else's life? Take care. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.